This is the KPMG Investment Management Perspectives Podcast. In this episode answers the question, what does the modernized regulatory framework for fund valuation mean for advisors? Hi, I'm Matt Giordano, Deputy Practice Leader for KPMG's Public Investment Management Practice and a partner in our Boston office. This is part two of my conversation with Dave Grimm, a partner at Stradley Ronan, discussing the impacts of the new SEC valuation rule and how it'll affect advisors. If you didn't catch part one, go back and listen to hear about the impacts that the new rule will have to boards. So Dave, let's talk about advisors' liability. When this rule first came out, what we were hearing, or the proposal for the rule first came out, what we were hearing is that this would put significantly more liability on the advisor. Um, Can you talk a little bit about liability and and how you think about it from an advisor standpoint? Sure. Um, I think about it in... Some of the concepts that we talked about with board liability carry over to advisor liability, right? So first of all, again, the safe harbor concept. The safe harbor was advanced by commenters for both boards and advisors, right? It's the same idea. If you have a recognition in the rule that it can be okay to do your valuations a bunch of different ways, that's better from a liability perspective. But again, the SEC didn't didn't take that approach in the adoption. Um, Similar story when it comes to the footfall issue that I mentioned earlier, right? The record-keeping problem that is not the same thing as a valuation um, violation. That was a good clarification for boards on liability. Similarly, it's a good clarification for advisors on liability. The two other things that I would say about liability and advisors, um, one of the elements of the rule requires the advisors when they're designated to do valuation by the board to evaluate pricing services. And look, that's something that advisors do today, um, those that use pricing services for their funds, but it's really hard, right? Overseeing a pricing service is very challenging. The job that pricing services have is really challenging, right? So having that in a rule is a, you know, as a, a sort of specific obligation is something to keep it, keep your eye on when it comes to advisor liability. Dave, uh, I think the pricing service um, item is, is important in the evaluation of pricing services because what we've seen is that even when you have price challenges around pricing services, they've been very reluctant to change the price in arrears, right? You kind of start to see their price coalesce with other prices going forward. And I think that that's hard for an advisor to to come to a consensus as to whether or not that that value was correct in, in the past. Um, and again, it's just an estimate. And now, right, we've recently seen an enforcement case against a pricing vendor or pricing services. So how do you, how do you think through that? And we don't have to answer that today, but just something for folks to consider. Yes, very well said, Matt. This is this is goes back to what I said right at the beginning about the Monday morning quarterbacking with valuation, right? It, it's it's so hard to do in the moment. And you know, and then the next day and a week later or whatever you look back and like um, it really is challenging. It's challenging for the pricing service, it's challenging for the advisors and that's, you know, that's the root of liability in SEC enforcement cases that which is why everybody has to keep a close eye on this stuff. Um, 
The last piece of advisor liability that I would just highlight for everybody in the proposal, there was a specific valuation policy and procedure requirement in the rule. And certain commenters pointed out to the SEC, is that really necessary? We're already obligated under the compliance rule more generally to have procedures around uh, valuation. Why don't you just rely on that for this particular obligation? And the SEC um, heard that comment, agreed with it, and took it out of the valuation rule. So I think that's good. You know, it's just one less rule on the books around policies and procedures to violate, right? Um, so that's why I think it's good from an um, advisor liability perspective. So that's that's how I think about advisor liability, Matt. All right, great. And what are some of the, um, you know, some of the required elements of the rule or some, some other items that advisors should really focus on? Yep. Um, so if you are designated to do this responsibility under the rule, um, here are the things you got to do. You have to assess and manage valuation risk. You have to establish and apply valuation methodologies. You have to test those methodologies. And you have to evaluate pricing service, as, as we were just talking about in the liability section. So those are the, kind of the four cornerstones of the rule. And then I would note that within those cornerstones, the adopting release actually provides some helpful flexibility on some of those points. So for example, on the methodologies, the way the proposal worked was there were some questions around whether you could ever change the methodology if uh, you decided something was better. Um, The SEC in the adoption helpfully clarified that, yeah, if there's another methodology that's as least as at least as good or better you you can switch to that one so i thought that was a good a good change um another change that they made from the proposal in the proposal there was some wording in the rule that contemplated adopting methodologies for thing for instruments that you might invest in and a lot of commenters said whoa 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 that's i mean (laughs) that's a pretty big universe um and i think the sec heard that comment and and, and modified that requirement accordingly. Price challenges, Matt, is something that you mentioned. I think they gave some more flexibility around uh, what needs to be done for, for the process for pricing challenges. Um, and then, as I mentioned before, the records requirement, I think, got simplified quite a bit. There were some comments around the proposal and how it seemed to demand a lot more records than the SEC probably really needed. And fortunately, the SEC um, was able to um, modify that requirement in the adoption to make it a little bit more reasonable. So those are kind of the big buckets of issues, I think. Another thing that I would, I guess, highlight for advisors that they're going to have to do under this new rule is what the rule calls specifying responsibilities. So if you get this responsibility designated to you by the board, you have to identify who's doing what um, in summary, right? You know, the people that are going to take on the, the specific responsibilities under the, um, under the process. So that, that's another piece that I think um, advisors, you know, many advisors do that already, but they're going to have to look at it fresh with this new requirement and just make sure it it's in compliance with, with how to do it. And Dave, does that increase personal liability of the folks who are essentially 
being designated as having that responsibility, will that be another concern and will those folks be harder to find in your organization? It's a good question. Um, you know, typically the way, um, historically the way SEC valuation enforcement cases have worked, they've been against the advisor, the entity, right? So the, the fine or punishment will be against the advisor as an entity, but it's not without um, precedent that particular individuals have also been identified in those actions. And now that you're going to have a very clear statement of who's responsible for what, um, I think that's something that people are going to have to think about very carefully going forward for sure. Interesting. We went over a little bit about the board reporting earlier and, and the fact that management will really have to be able to work with the board here and work together to come to a consensus of, of what it what is reported, what needs to be reported, the depth of the reporting. Because, um, of course, there are certain things that need to be reported, um, but there are, there are other areas where management may be a little more detailed or a little le- a little more specific in certain areas. Um, one of the big things that that kind of caught my attention was the 17A7 transactions or the or the cost cross trades and the fact that um, you know now now this rule or the determination of fair value is kind of brought into 17A7. You want to touch on that? You are not the only person whose attention that caught. Um, there's a lot of discussion going on in the industry right that right now about this. And, you know, the way I think about this issue is there are some old SEC positions that bless cross trades of certain fixed income securities. And when the rule proposal came out uh, um, and the SEC chose to define readily available market quotes in a certain way. Um, One of the comments that the industry made in response to that was um, readily available market quotes is one of the elements under 17A7. What you're doing here with that definition may impact in a significant way how people cross-trade certain instruments under the rule and whether they are even able to cross-trade those instruments under the rule. Please clarify that that's not what you're doing. You're doing valuation. You're not doing 17A7. You have a separate work stream going on on 17A7. If you want to address those issues as part of that, you know, go for it. But um, let's keep this to valuation. Let's not um, go down the cross-trade road. Well, that's not the approach the SEC took um, in the adoption. And they laid out some concerns that they have with cross-trading certain fixed income instruments under those old letters. They did not um, withdraw those old letters, but um, they are contemplating doing so according to the release. Um, So I think this is an area that for folks that cross trade fixed income securities, they're going to need to look at very carefully and think about uh, how to move forward uh, with those kind of transactions. But also the SEC has time to make, adjustments or changes to 17A7 as well, right, which is pointed out in, in the text. They do say that in the release. That's right. Um, the question, of course, is prior to them doing that with 
them calling into question some of these positions in the release, you know, what does that what does that mean you do, you know, right now, right? So that that's why people need to both engage on what the SEC does long term on the rule, but also in the meantime figure out um, how to move forward um, right now. Dave, thanks so much. This has really been a great conversation and helped me and hopefully our listeners clarify some of the impacts the new rule will have on advisors. Thank you to our listeners for joining us today. And as always, please reach out to me or Dave Grimm if you have any questions about the topic. Thank you for listening to KPMG's Investment Management Perspectives Podcast. For more information, go to listen.kpmg.us slash imperspectives. And be sure to subscribe to the series to be notified of new episodes.